0: listening to What I Know from Inc. Magazine. I'm Christine ligorio chapkin Today's episode, look for things others don't see. Let's take a moment to look at what we think of as business innovation, or call disruption these days. Say when Warby Parker's founders questioned why buying simple eyeglasses was so complicated and wildly expensive. Or when Casper wanted to send mattresses cheaply to your door, dollar shave club for razors. It's all a pattern of identifying an industry that hasn't changed its practices or pricing in a while or that industry has a dominant monopolist with weak spots. But another way of looking at all of that is they're just selling something people want in a different way, which is fine. But there are other entrepreneurs who actually see the world, or a little slice of the world, through a different lens than others. And through it, they can see things that others don't see at all. They have questioned long-held beliefs, and challenged them. This is where our guest today comes in. Her name is Sally Krawczyk. She's the co founder and CEO of Elevest, the digital financial advisor that focuses on the money needs of women. Sally founded it in 2016 after spending decades as an analyst and executive on Wall Street. It was there she spotted a disparity no one could explain. Men dominated investing from ownership of investment firms to 98% of mutual fund dollars were managed by men to the investors themselves, again, mostly men. When Sally brought her observations and solutions to some of the men at the tops of banks, they couldn't see anything was wrong with that or anything worth trying to change. But Sally had seen something that others didn't. It was her time on Wall Street that helped her form the ability to see things in a different way. That doesn't mean it was always fun.
1: It was horrible. The whole thing was horrible. It it was the work ethic of mess around all day and then work all night, mess around during the week and work all weekend, leave it to the last second before you go to the airport so you can make sure to run for the plane, take credit for the good deals and everybody scatter from the bad deals. They didn't want me there. It was just a bunch of crude jokes. The crude jokes did come from the guys who were a year or two ahead of me, but it came from my boss's 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 boss. I mean, my first day I'm standing at my desk and someone walks behind me, looks at my outfit and says, what kind of fucking discount maternity? Where is that? That was a head of department. And so you just had this sense of, I certainly don't belong and they certainly don't want me here which means they're not getting rid of me.
0: You were on Wall Street, though, for, for years. What did you do to make it bearable for yourself or or what was your drive there? What motivated you to continue?
1: So I was for a single digit number of years in investment banking, which was that team run for the airplane work all weekend. I had the presence of mind as I turned 30 to shift from investment banking to equity research. And that is more of an individual sport. That is more cerebral. You know, you do research into a company. I mean, not unlike sometimes a journalist, you know, sort of doing investigative journalism. As a research analyst, you would build an earnings model. You would put together sort of an investment thesis. You would write research reports. You would visit with smart clients. And that was just nirvana for me because you got to deal with smart people. A lot of the gender things had really been pulled away. People were there to invest in stocks to make money or not lose money. And so, so much of the jostling, I mean, it was if your research was good and you help people make money, that was that. nobody was like, oh, she's a girl. She has cooties. I don't want her (laughs) money making research. And actually, I would say the fact that I was a woman was a benefit because as the one woman competing with maybe 19 guys in an industry sector, I was very memorable. Whereas if you were the 15th guy, you know, oh, he's a guy who wears a tie. He has glasses. What? I don't know who he is. Right. The woman was like, oh,
0: got it. Right. Right. The like, which Josh am I talking to right now thing? (laughs) Yeah, I wonder if the journalism um, that you had formerly practiced and studied, and the analyst kind of researcher that you became then, if during your career you were sort of always, um, if you if you had a narrative in mind, or if you were sort of writing your own narrative and thinking about that trajectory. Because we all know where you are now and what you've created with Elevest, but were were there seeds of it being formed in your mind in the early Not- days? Really.
1: But I mean, I didn't sit there as a research analyst and say, gee, I have to help women invest. The training that it did provide is if you are going to be a successful research analyst, you are going to have to be uncomfortable before you are right. So if you say, oh, I'm recommending Bank of America stock, and everybody's recommending Bank of America stock. And so you're comfortable and you feel good, then it's over already, right? Everybody's already bought it, people have got their positions. What you really want to be is contrary. And so you are, hey, I see something nobody sees. This stock is going to go up or down. And everybody's like, oh, you're crazy. You're wrong. That's the worst. Get away from me. And so then you all, then people start to see what you see and then come over to your side. You convince them, et cetera. If you're comfortable as a research analyst, you're probably going to be wrong. What that helped me do as a research analyst is look for the things other people don't see, even when they're telling you that you're wrong. And that is the basis of entrepreneurialism, that you have to see something others don't see in order for you to build a company that's a successful company. It's not enough, but it's, you know, sort of a, it's a necessary,
0: but not sufficient condition. Right. You have to, you have to also be kind of comfortable being uncomfortable, right? Well, yeah, I know. (laughs) And it's been years now. (laughs) (laughs)
1: you're like what pretty much uncomfortable every day for years yep you get that right (laughs) and and lonely And I uh, yes. have, have stuff written about your company and you that you're like, no, stop,
0: please. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, that's anytime you, you allow yourself to be in the spotlight or want to be, right? I mean, there's if you put yourself in other people's hands, it's... And
1: particularly as a woman, which is a whole other thing about the standards to which women executives and women entrepreneurs are held, which is pretty demonstrably
0: higher. So tell me about when you decided it was time to strike out on your own and time to begin the, the company that became Elevest.
1: It was a pretty long process. I had been on Wall Street for a number of years, CFO of Citigroup. Um, I ran Merrill Lynch. I ran when there was a Smith Barney the Smith Barney. You know, it's sort of funny over the course of those years, when I would get up and share quarterly statistics with the teams and would say, okay, so we had this much in assets come in this quarter to be invested and this much left, you know, and, and I would describe the, this much left as, you know, X number of clients died as the client face age and that they left. And, you know, it sort of took me a remarkably long period of time before I said, wait a second, those assets went somewhere. They went to typically given the way the demographics work to the wife and she left and she went someplace. And then I began to look through the numbers and said, oh my gosh, Something like 70 to 90% of women leave their and their spouse's joint financial advisor in the year after their husband's death. Huh. The men actually had a very high rating of their financial advisor, trusted him more than their doctor. And women ranked the industry 33 out of 33 of those that served them. And so this is huge gender split between what men were thinking and what women were thinking, between the service men got and the service women got. Now, the industry typically, I'm putting air quotes, blames women for this. And you probably heard this, right? Women are risk averse. Women aren't as good at math. Women aren't as good at investing. Women don't like investing. Women need more financial education. Every one of those is untrue, with the exception that everybody needs needs more financial education. And so over the course of months, I started to ask, maybe it's not that something's wrong with women. They don't invest as much as men do. Maybe our industry where 99% of investment dollars are managed to companies owned by white men and 98% of mutual fund dollars are managed by men, maybe they actually just built men built a business for themselves. They didn't mean to, but they built a business for themselves. And a little bit of evidence of that is the industry symbols a bull, right? It's a pretty masculine symbol. Sure. And what if we raise some money and build something from the ground up for women? And I will embarrass myself by saying all my hypotheses about what women wanted were wrong. I sort of came from that patriarchal industry where it's like, oh, well, the problem with women is they're emotionally stunted with money. And so therefore we need to provide them with a channel in order to get into blah, 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 blah. And the women, of course, were like, no, that's, we,
0: you know, no, no, thank you. Where were the, the clients going? Were they going to small like family brokers and, and just advisors, just banks, just putting their money in the bank? Thanks, put their money in the bank.
1: And in fact, what you saw is, and we see this still today, across the age spectrum, Women uh, put the majority of their wealth in the bank. Men invest more of their money. And that gender investing gap cost women hundreds of thousands for some women a million plus dollars over the course of their lives. So they're like, hey, can't get this figured out. I'll just keep the money safe here. And so they end up going backwards every single day because savings accounts, you know, yield close to zero. Whereas the equity accounts have earned on average nine and a half percent annually since the 1920s with a lot of volatility. And those are life changing differences. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. How did you create an actual company out of it? It wasn't your standard. I'm going to just get some venture funding and file for my LLC.
1: It was not because I am not a an entrepreneur. I didn't think of myself as an entrepreneur. So first I said, all right, Well, let me go. I know all the CEOs, the big banks, let me go to them and you know I'm not doing anything. So I'll offer to help them. Let me give them the data that women control, call it a trillion dollars of investable assets. Ninety percent of women manage it on their own at some point in their lives, whether they want to or not. You know, women, again, as we were saying before, rank the industry dead last of industries that serve them. Big market, really underserved. Let me take this to some of the bank CEOs. and I'll offer to just, you know I'll just do this for free. I'll do the work for free because, why not? And went to a few of them. And I tell you, they could not see it after I described what I just went through to one big bank CEO, who's a friend of mine and said, 90% of women manage money in the room finish up the sort of description. He's like, yeah, but don't their husbands manage their money for them? I'm like, did you listen? And he did, but he couldn't hear me. And so those businesses are so entrenched. And in fact, when I start to think about, could I have done this at Merrill Lynch? I couldn't have, right? 86% of their financial advisors at the time were men. The average age was in the 50s, it's now in the 60s. They are making a ton of money the time I was running it, more than $2 billion a year. Why would you change? Let's change our business model and go tech first, as opposed to leading with the financial advisor, and let's build it around women. You'd be like, that's crazy. Don't do that. So it really, I think, had to be a startup in order to give it any chance of success.
0: You did kind of a, a few really neat things in starting Elevest. First, you you set out with this idea of kind of externally being female focused, but also internally you became very female focused. With I I don't know if these, this this data is current, but I've I read at one point seventy five percent of Elevest employees were identify as female, and fifty percent were people of color. Is That's still correct. That's right. That's right. Yes, yeah, so even your engineering team two thirds female at least. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wow. And product team majority female. And we also try to represent in the complexion of the company the world as it is today, not the world as it was in the 1950s, which gives us a real talent arbitrage. If you are a a woman, if you're, say, a Black woman who wants to be in fintech or financial services, and you look at other fintech companies or Wall Street firms, and you look at who's in management, in leadership you don't see yourself, but you do see yourself at Alvest. Even female CEOs say, I mean, we can't find any female engineers. I said, we've got them.
0: Yeah. And did that, I mean, did that take something special? Did that take a unique approach when you were starting out? What did you do differently? just, Just straight out from the start in terms of hiring?
1: Well, so first of all, it's a recognition that diversity for a startup is set at about 12 people. So you've got to get those first groups right. Why? Because you'll tend to then hire from those networks, okay? The second thing is I learned to say no. Now, this is a hard thing to do. It's because we have been brought up on the mother's milk of meritocracy. So you hire great people, you tell them what you wanna do, and you let them manage. And sometimes they manage the way you would have managed and sometimes they don't. At the end of the year, they get paid, they don't. They get more stock, they don't. But meritocracy, hire the best and brightest and let them go. And we had a pretty seminal moment at vest when a very talented individual manager was hiring and the choice came to between a white woman who, you know, for us at the time, that was our majority and a black queer woman. That was not what the majority of the company looked like. And this woman um, said, OK, I want to hire the white woman and went to my co-founder at the time and said, this is who I want to hire. And he called me. I remember early on a Saturday morning, I was out in California. He's like, oh, you are catching up and say, oh, we're going to hire this woman, call her Susie. And I said, "Um, well, walk me through. He said, well, everybody really liked both candidates. But at the end of the day, you know, it's sort of 52, 48, 52% for the white woman, 48% for the other one. And I said, okay, well, we're going to hire the queer woman to call. What? He said. And I said, if it's 52, 48, it's really 30, 70 because of our inherent biases. We need to have a diverse place. And, and this brings us a different perspective than, than we've got. And he said, we can't do that. We've got to let our managers manage. I said, no, if we override her, then she's going to feel like we don't trust her, et cetera. So we had like a, an argument where I was sweating. And I said, you know what? I worked in meritocracies for my entire career. They were called Wall Street. They thought they were hiring the best and the brightest. Financial crisis, we could debate whether they were or not, but that for them because of their biases meant they hired people like themselves and it never shifted. And if we say, okay, to this one, we're going to say, okay, to the next one and the next one and the next one. Um, And if this one individual is not the right one, fine, but we just won't hire until we find someone who brings diversity to our group. And so that was sort of a seminal moment when we said, this isn't an individual choice. This is a company choice to bring
0: this diversity. There's something so crucial there to having that strong foundation. And is there any advice you would have for a company that's just starting up about getting those first 12 people right? You
1: know, you, you may not get them right, but try to get them diverse. And I really think about it as a Rubik's cube that I'm trying to solve, which is, do we have the right ingredients? And that is diversity of skin color and diversity of gender, education, experience optimist, pessimist, introvert, extrovert, right? If you end up with a group that's all a bunch of pessimists, that's not going to work. But if you end up with a group that's all a bunch of optimists, that's not going to work. And so you can't always solve for it exactly. But I think the mistake people make is we say, well, we have to hire the best person for the job. And so we look at the job in isolation and say the best person is, and by the way, it's typically someone who reminds me myself, right? We can talk about best people, but best is so incredibly subjective. Maybe you're a company that values Ivy League degrees. Maybe you're a company that values A pluses or 4.0s, right? That is a definition of best. But if you keep doing that again and again, you've got no diversity. So what I try to turn it on its head is we need to hire the best person for the team. That could be a very different person depending on the composition of the team, but let's try to fill in the holes that that were missing.
0: That's so smart because you often hear a founder will say, or I'll often hear a founder say, oh, I hire for what I am not the strongest at. I hire for my, the thing that I need to, you know, do better. But but you were looking at an entire team and saying, where are our holes and what can we hire for there? And what, what expertise and what perspectives do we need to fill in the gaps on?
1: Both of those are right. You know, I, yeah. I used to joke that my co-founder and I, you know, were so different, we agreed on nothing. <laughs> which, which worked for a while. It didn't work after a while. And that's good for that first hire, but then you begin to fill in around there. So I think it's really both. It's not, Ooh, I hired someone different from me. Now I'm going to go work on product and you all just, you know,
0: chill over Yeah. There. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me more about your co-founder. Um, it, it, you, you had this very interesting debate about hiring and you say you disagreed about most things. Like what, uh, what, what was that dynamic like day to day? Yeah, it,
1: it was, since I come from big company. I mean, I'd worked at Sanford Bernstein, so I'd done small company, medium-sized company, but my experience for the decade plus was large, complex global institutions, right? And finance. So I was looking for someone who had more of a tech background and a startup background overall, who had done fintech before, since I had not done fintech. And finding someone who, you know, had incorporated a company and negotiated raises and negotiated an exit and all that stuff. And we had an agreement at the beginning that he would do all of the internal stuff. And I would do more of the external stuff that because a big part of Elevest was telling people there's a gender investing gap that you don't even know about right now, let me tell you about it. Let me tell you how much it costs you. Let me tell you all the things you think. That drive it that are your fault or wrong. Let me tell you six more times because you're not going to remember it. You know, you got to be told this stuff over and over again. You know, we never talk about financial wellness as being key to a life. Well, lived. we talk about emotional wellness, physical wellness, spiritual wellness, but not, um, financial wellness. And so, um, we said, you do the inside and I'll do the outside. And that worked for a number of years and, until it didn't
0: work any longer. Yeah, was was the fact that you disagreed on so much part of that, or or was it like more of a business matter?
1: No, that stuff. The the sort of different perspectives worked well for the first handful of years. What ended up happening, as tends to happen with you know a number of individuals who spend their lives in sort of small start you know sort of starty startup world, is that you scale through, and it's so nobody warns you it can happen so damn fast. You know, every everything seems fine in one week and two weeks later, you're like, wow, that he he or she is miserable. He or she is not performing. And, you know, how quickly can you get and stay on top of that?
0: Yeah. I mean, and and they say every time your company triples in size, everything breaks, right? So how do you know when that's actually coming? <laughs> what, was the, what was the biggest challenge of the first four or five years um, for you personally? The first was
1: just getting the thing off the ground and not, again, the incorporation, but what I didn't realize that we were dealing with is, you know, so many, we started as a digital advisor. We've added to it since then, right? So we now, a lot of learning and a lot of coaching and, and banking and saving and so on. But we started as a digital investment advisor. And what we couldn't do was what others had done before, which said, oh my gosh, you're already investing. Come on over here, we'll do it cheaper and better. Because women had their money in the bank. And so what we really were doing was saying, Your money is in a safe now, no ups, no downs. We want you to change your behavior. We want you to bring the money over to Elevest, which has no track record. You can't talk to anybody. You could lose everything. So change your behavior right in that way. Also, you've been told your whole life that you're not good at money. Little girls still receive those messages in the home that they're budgeting, coupon clipping with mom and dad and and are investing. It's only in a single digit percent of homes that mom takes the sole lead on investing, even today, and a lower double digit percent where they take the joint lead. When they have grown up, the boys become young men and there's all kinds of male money media, right? CNBC and Bloomberg and for women on personal finance it's in women's magazines and websites and it tends to be all about guilt don't buy the latte or it's patronizing take this quiz or it's negative money doesn't have to be really really hard so whereas the the men are watching CNBC and is about making money the women are reading about being careful and being not good with money i mean we're being gaslit essentially right you know don't buy the latte forget the fact you only make 80 cents to a man's dollar and you're shouldering all the burden of childcare at home, and the bar is higher for you to get the raise, but don't buy that friggin' latte. And she's like, okay, sorry, I won't buy the latte. <laughs> right. So, what we were dealing with was we had to sort of break through her sense of inadequacy when it comes to money and the view that she had to get straight A's in investing. Men will invest when they don't understand, right? Oh, buy managed account. What I saw at Smith Barney. Eighty-six percent of our clients didn't know what it was. Men would buy, women would not. And so she's waiting till she has got it figured out. On top of that, we have been socialized that for women is inferior and that is a junior varsity, dumbed-down product because it has been. And so, hey, here's Vest. Buy women for women. Come on over. Don't talk to anybody for this. What you think is a dumbed-down product that where you could lose all your money? Like I'm shocked anybody. Being <laughs> Stunned. But what we did that we didn't really realize we were doing is we were building a brand and we were building a community at the same time. And we were ultra generous with our content. Three newsletters a week at the time, tons of content. And so we built slowly. So the hard beginning, you know, got started a little slowly. And then investors were like, women don't need their own thing. And then the one I would go to meet with male venture capitalists. And after they told me women didn't need their own thing, they then told me there could be only one of us, that there can be dozens and dozens of multi billion dollar valued investment firms for men, but only one for women. Right. And so you sort of found you were fighting through these ingrained beliefs every step of the way. The second part was getting through the pandemic. You know, I, I mean, wow. Yeah,
0: let's talk about that. Um, what did, how did you react at first, and and what did Elevest do? Um, where, actually, bring me up to speed. What what size was the company at the time? How many employees? Where are they based? How did it operate? Yeah, so
1: we had about a hundred employees and full time, you know, consultants or contractors at the time. Um, we had an office in Flatiron District in New York. Though we had, we've always been flexibility friendly. Um, so we had folks in San Francisco, you know, Boston, etc. We had several hundred million of assets under management, you know, and we were motoring into this year with a plan. We we had probably nine months of runway, and so we were like, ah, oh, yeah, when we were just about to raise little money, here we go, tootling into twenty twenty, and then the pandemic hits, and none of us have been through anything like this in our professional lives. I have managed through a large organizations, through uh, financial crises, this was more difficult because there was a health issue as well. And of course there was a loneliness issue. So when I managed before, I was the CEO, I'm doing air quotes here, of Merrill, you know, of Smith Barney, but the guy who was running, you know, the consumer bank was right down the hall. And so there was a, all right, we're in a together team. Um, I was the only one who had been through a crisis like this before. You know, you had no, like, literally no idea what was going to happen. None. Um, you just knew the market was going down and it was bad. You know, then you started to get, um, I think, Sequoia, which had put out their famous Sequoia letter in 08 batten down the hatches, money won't be available, everybody, you know, prepare, put out another. And people were saying, expect there not to be any funding for two years. Okay, we got a problem. I don't have two years. So what are we going to do? And this is when things got sort of interesting slash horrible, because we were, you know, we weren't a restaurant company or a hotel company. But the clearest way to increase your runway is to lay people off. Um, And so I'm sitting here as a CEO. Oh, I don't know what's going to happen. It feels bad. The advice is to slash are we going to fire people into a pandemic and what does it look like on the other side? And this is where my co-founder and I, you know, really had a difference of opinion, which is his, um, I think in my nightmares, I'll continue to hear, um, cut once, cut deep, cut once, cut deep, cut once, cut deep. My like, well, you know, and I remember there was a weekend he was trying to chase me down. Like, cause he had to, we got the names, we got to get to the managers. We got to go on Monday. I'm like, well, and I don't answer my phone. And I started. Yeah. And, yeah. and the, you know, y- who do you reach out to? Right. And you've got a board that's okay, come on, we got to take these expenses down. And I reached out to a few people who um, had been valued personal board of directors, came to the decision. What really felt right to me was for everybody to cut their salaries. Mine a hundred percent, leadership team 30%. Rest of the company, fifteen percent, which would get us the same as if we'd laid off a third of the company. We went back to our core values, one of which is we are a team. And I presented them, said, "I can't. If this is our core value, I cannot, in good conscience, send people out in the pandemic." I ended up some weeks later taking some of my equity and transferring, granting it to the rest of the team to try to make up for you know the salary deductions. And sure enough, come the fall, when the markets pick back up, we were able to do a 12 and dollar raise and take the salaries back up. Wow. And every night I wake up, well, many nights I'd wake up in a cold sweat. And what if we'd laid off a third of the company? And what breaks my heart, I was talking to a VC who said what they saw is a lot of women startup CEOs, because we follow the rules, in industries that did not ultimately get hit, took that advice and laid people off. Didn't uh, hit their KPIs. Huh. And weren't able to raise money. Yeah, and a lot of the gentlemen were like, you know, let me keep running the business, and we'll see if we crash into a wall. And and they ended up that was a bet that paid off for them.
0: It's so interesting that you know you made that choice, and you can yeah. still sort of see both paths, right? Like you still have that th- that that third of the company potentially gone haunting you a little bit. That's you, you clearly made the right decision for your company, but um, but that's that's so fascinating.
1: We did in hindsight. But you just never knew. Right. Those who disagree with me would say we're wasting this money. You know, we could cut salaries and cut people. And unfortunately, by the time we know that we have to do that, it's going to be too late. And you're like, yep, that's exactly right. It's going to be too late. Um, What was sort of funny, this team was so amazing about this. I mean, so amazing. And I think it really brought the team together I was very transparent every, you know, month here, here is what the numbers for the business look like here, are the number of COVID deaths, here's where the S and P is, here's where the did, here's what our flows are. Here's every number, everything. If you were a CEO, you might make a different decision. Let me tell you the decision I'm making off of these numbers. Right. And, and so I'm not hiding anything. And I think it really brought everybody together. But what was really sort of funny is, of course, there were a few people who would, who complained. Why don't you lay her off? Why don't you lay him off? Why don't you take up salaries? You could, that person doesn't seem to be pulling their weight, and I got to tell you the truth is every damn time, somebody say who 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 was that? who said it was like yeah. Do they know they were on the original list? <laughs> to be laid off like i already thought it wasn't them i'm like be careful what you wish for (laughs) right right
0: right exactly what's the state of the company kind of hopefully coming out of things are you returning to to an office how is the culture sort of um what's the plan roadmap for for the culture and for sort of returning to some something that that we used to have i don't know
1: well, so it's an interesting question because as we were going through this, I let the lease lapse. I'm like, I, you know, yeah. why would I keep paying 50,000 bucks a month as a startup or 55, whatever it was, you know, and throw the money out the window. So today we are all remote. We have no plans to go back yet. We are polling our team to see what people want. You know, we're really asking ourselves the question, do we want to be remote friendly or remote first? If I had to guess and the company will lead me to the right answer, I would guess we take some space, but it's a gathering place, not an office. Mm. But what we've had to do, and I think we've done well, really led also by our head of people ops and vice president of finance, is just what we've learned is just transparency. We took our all hands from once a week to twice a week. We have a few all-company gatherings now which people are invited to, to go through the KPIs if they want. The transparency of this company's increased
0: 12-fold since the pandemic. It's so key to keep that communication flowing as much as possible, lest people get so isolated feeling in their own homes. Are there any other smaller or more subtle ways that that LFS has been able to make it work and keep those communications up and make the working from home or working from wherever remotely work for all different teams? We've put in
1: place deep work periods for people. We are always asking, does this have to be a meeting or does it have to be, or can it be a Slack? And we keep polling them to see what they like. Also, when we took down salaries, we gave everybody half day Fridays off. We said, we're going to give you some time back. Oh. And at first we're like, do we need to do that? Because people, what are the people who could sit in their homes more? But except I think everybody's so emotionally exhausted. The productivity never went down. In fact, it increased and improved. So what we're thinking about, what of those we're going to carry through to sort of normal.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Over this past year, you managed more than a billion dollars. Is that correct? And it's even more than 1.1 $1. 1 billion now. Ah, great. Yeah. Wow. So, so there was growth over the past year.
1: Oh my gosh. Just for fun, we started pulling together all the reasons people told us now, you know, it's the women don't have enough money and women are in a real market and all that stuff. But one of the objections was well, you can grow your business when times are good, but when times are bad, these women are going to freak out. I mean, everybody knows how delicate women are, right? And how nervous was sort of the underlying message. We had net positive net inflows every week last year and this year. But what was notable about last year is we had positive inflows, women continuing to send money in to invest in weeks that the industry had record outflows. And in fact, some weeks were so bad, they were worse than the worst months that had preceded them. Hmm. And so a big learning for us was, you know, these women will stand strong. Um, And it's what the research tells you, that men tend to trade more and women are like, nope, I got a plan and I'm busy doing other things now. So let me keep with a plan and all of us tell me if the plan needs to change.
0: Yeah, 100%. I mean, does that give you a new sort of marketing opportunity? Does the growth of of these online trading platforms and younger people frequently trading give you a, another thing to sort of yeah. say we yeah. are a counter to or does it encourage young folks of all gender identities to say, hey, I can throw a little money into yeah. this and watch it grow, learn to trade casually without it being a big state. It's part of my income or uh, you know anything. I mean, it's just, it's been really interesting to see different groups sort of get into that. And also what you were just saying seems to strike something counter to it for me.
1: And look, I, I hate to sound like grandma here, but um, you know we see this every generation. Remember the day traders of the mm-hmm. late 1990s. This is even greater because the barriers to entry to investing are so much lower. It's quote unquote free. Nothing's free, but it's quote unquote free. What I actually just wrote our newsletter, part of what it talks about is, look, consenting adults can do what consenting adults want to do in my point of view. However, let's just be really clear. We understand the difference between trading and investing. And trading can be like your Vegas money. You may win and you may lose, but do not let that be the core of what you do. Investing is based on fundamentals it should be for the medium to longer term. And you and I both know, we know a lot of people who have invested their way to a secure retirement. We know nobody who has traded their way to a secure retirement, as in maybe there's a professional trader, you know, hedge fund guy. But in terms of your father's friend, Steve, Steve did not day trade his way to a secure retirement. So that's what I worry about is these two things get conflated. And people think they're trading, which means they're investing. It,
0: it's not the I standard. wonder, though, if it could serve to give younger women more confidence in getting into markets and in investing larger amounts. Maybe.
1: We hope Ellevest is doing that. You, you see every once in a while, oh, there's a spike in women. But typically, these apps are still just like their forefathers. It's 15% women or 20% women or 30% women. You know, these tend to still be built
0: by men for men. What do you see as happening in the industry over the next five? years. Is that a sustaining trend, something that we'll see more of? And and what do you see in terms of the growth of Ellevest within the industry too?
1: You know, it is fascinating because I remember back when I was chief financial officer of City, and I used to say something that was smart ass, but true, which is that the financial services industry at that time, yeah, the odds at that time, the last real innovation in financial services was the ATM. And that, the trading desks had a lot of, we've innovated, we have CDO squared and all that stuff. If you remember those, which were really just, hey, we took a whole bunch of risk and packaged it and gave it an a name. But there was really no innovation. That is not the case now, right? There is a ton of fintech innovation, be it in the payment section, segment, be it insure tech, be it wealth tech, be it the neobanks. Not all of these will survive. Of course, some of them are attracting too much capital and will choke on it. And by the way, same as it ever was, nibbling up from the bottom, there's not big innovations around, you know, the private wealth area. There's some innovations, but where the real innovation is taking place is, you know, through technology, getting to people who are often millennials, women, these underrepresented
0: markets. Right. And I've read about Ellevest squads um, and, and other kind of community building and education components of Ellevest. What's, what's going on there and what should we look forward to?
1: When we started, we decided not to give women what they immediately asked for. Because when we said, what do you want? They said financial education. And so we built something where it was intuitive, it's straightforward, it's laid out for you. You don't need to read a big book in order to invest with Ellevest or to engage with Ellevest. What we did see, what we have seen over time, and particularly last year, there is a thirst for guidance and coaching. What we really pivoted towards education. And so that can be an email course. We're doing workshops. We do big workshops. We do small workshops. We do one-on-one. The other thing that's sort of interesting is if you ask women, and this is not just us, if you ask women what they want from their money provider, they all say, oh, I want to make more money at work. And then the rest of the industry ignores them. We've actually added executive coaches. So we have huh. certified financial planners, executive coaches, financial advisors, money coaches, so that we can, you know, not only provide the product to help her, but that help, you know, sort of that guidance along the way.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. And, and anyone can sign up for that who's an LFS member? Yeah, that's for
1: sure. And anyone can sign up for LFS. We personalize your investment accounts um, based on a number of things, including gender male, female, non-binary, which the rest of the industry does not. And to me, it's just a real miss. That knowing that women live six to eight years longer than the men in their lives, knowing that women tend to make less, knowing that women's salaries tend to peak sooner, knowing that women's tend to take more career breaks, knowing that non-binary individuals likewise are not earning as much as men, that we build that into our product and into our advice in a way that the others don't.
0: Oh, that's fascinating and um do you sh- do you have a number you can share in terms of how many members you have now or how many people have used the service
1: something like 120000 who are using the who are cl- customers, clients, members, whatever one wants to That's call them. That's great. And
0: what are you proudest of, Sally, in terms of th- the last decade of of building Elevest? Was it what you got through this pandemic? I mean, it doesn't feel quite over yet, but um, or was it, was it something prior to that, or or uh, something conceptual?
1: Not to sound like sort of a mom, but I think the thing I'm most proud of is the team that we brought together. You know, this is a group of really diverse, enormously talented, truly driven, really fun individuals who have come together to solve a really important problem, which is get more money in the hands of women and solve it in a way that no one else out there is solving. it. So we're looking to solve hard problems. What I actually love is they just tell me about it. I mean, It's just this like company-wide discussion at many points in time when both at the product level. Can we do this? Like, no, we're going to do this. And I'm like, well, can you explain to me why we're going to do this instead of my idea? And they give me this great explanation. I'm like, fine, do it. There are cultural moments when the team wants to take a stand or help our community or change what we're offering. And so I'm really proud of them. Last year during the pandemic, when it was really bad in the markets, the whole company redirected itself to, we will answer any money question our community has. we got an email that's open. We'll do Instagram lives. We'll do LinkedIn lives. We will be there for her. Um, we will stay up late, type our little fingers into little nubs, but that's what we're here for. This is our community and here we yeah. are for you. And it was really amazing to watch. Yeah.
0: And people had some, some totally new and unprecedented money questions this year. Oh my
1: gosh, for sure. No, it was a scary time for everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, watching the team who was also scared. Yeah, you know, be there for others was really sort of the highlight of my career.
0: What advice would you have for um, a hopeful fintech entrepreneur just starting out now? I mean, obviously, it's an industry with so many more hurdles than than others, um, so much regulation and and so much almost stability to chase. How can someone start out and say, I'm going to take on these big guys?
1: Some of it is, you know, with Ellevest, it's seeing a problem in a personal way. And I often think of Ellevest akin to a bumble where no man thought, we needed a dating site to put women first, but Whitney did. What we saw at Alabest is women aren't being served well. The traditional point of view about why that it's their fault, we're going to test that. And so I think it's easiest if you have sort of a personal experience where you're solving a problem that you can clearly see as opposed to sort of an abstract problem, right? And every entrepreneur story starts with the... Oh, You know, why do glasses have to be so expensive? Why does my mattress have to be so good? I mean, they all start with the the moment. And so if you can find that moment, I would urge you to get on in there. If you stop to think about it too much, you won't because women (laughs) raised a grand total of 1% of FinTech dollars, VC dollars over the past X number of years. And so my approach was not just to knock on, you know, Sand Hill Road doors. Because if I did that, I had to knock on the doors and then convince them to change their worldview. What I did instead was let me go to people who happen to have money, who have the same worldview, and then convince them to invest the money. It's easier to convince someone to invest money, I think, than it is to convince them to change their worldview. That's why it was, how do we get to the Melinda Gateses? How do we get to the Penny Pritzkers? How do we get to the Rethink you know, Impacts? How do we get to the always investors, you know, for corporates, how do we get to companies like PayPal? that have closed their gender pay gap. Salesforce have closed it. And so I would urge you to go after it, but to maybe think about a different way of raising money that isn't the way that hasn't been as hospitable to us.
0: Thank you so much, Sally, for talking with me today. My pleasure.
1: Thanks for having me. It's been fun.
0: After speaking with Sally, what's so remarkable is that the thing that set her apart on Wall Street and gave her her reputation as an analyst was being able to see things other people couldn't. And that's what drove her to start her own company and to do things differently than the norm. It turns out that a bit of what makes an analyst great, spotting a stock that someone else might not, and getting comfortable being in the uncomfortable position of defending it also is a skill that's really important in entrepreneurship. Sally said she's gotten comfortable being uncomfortable. That's not easy, but that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. If you liked what you heard, we have a small favor to ask of you. Please hit subscribe or follow wherever you are listening so you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. Also, if you have any friends interested in startups, entrepreneurship, or evolving as leaders, please send them links to our show. And if you have an idea of a founder you'd love to hear, drop us a note at inc.com. Or you can let me know directly on Twitter at Ligorio. Our producer, who is invested entirely in commemorative coins—that's really smart, right?—is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Legorio-Chapkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.